Today on Blue 58, another draft preview, another position that isn't technically a need, but definitely still is a need. Defensive back. The prospect pool this year is a carnival of talent, skill sets, and crazy athletes, so what should the Packers do? Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast to thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink, happy to be with you here for another episode. Boy, it's a weird world out there, isn't it? It seems to get a little bit crazier by the day. You know, last year, newer listeners may not necessarily know about this, but last year I went through a bit of a rough stretch job-wise. I was unemployed for about seven months. And one of the things that I wished people would do, people who knew about it, I didn't didn't share it like super widely, but people who knew about it, I wish they would have checked in a little bit more. Just ask, how you doing? So in a situation where we're all dealing with something that's a little bit unusual, consider this me asking you how you're doing. Feel free to reach out, leave a comment, whatever. How you doing? It's okay if uh, if it's a little bit tough right now. I think that's that's something we're all learning. Um, it's different, and I'm not sure how soon normal is going to come back, and what if anything normal is going to look like when it does. Because as we hear more and more news about how this thing is spreading and how people are reacting, it's starting, I think, to become clear that maybe this NFL season is not going to escape unscathed things might be a little bit different. And that's, I think, going to be tough for all of us. may affect this show. Who knows what we're going to talk about if it gets to be July. And we've gone through our whole offseason of stuff, and suddenly there's no training camp. It's not that far away. It's three and a half months away from the start of training camp. And I'm less and less optimistic that everything is going to be back to normal by then. To all that to say, let let me ask you how you're doing. And you can feel free to tell me. And if you just want to stick around for Packers talk, that's fine too. Because for as as much as is possible, we're going to try to keep this show, again, as normal as possible. May jump in with stuff like this every now and then. But generally speaking, just going to try to pretend like nothing is happening. Not because I want to ignore what is happening, but because this is not the time or the place to solve that. But I think it is a place where we can listen to each other. And if you've got something you want to share, let it rip. And speaking of that, it's time to answer some questions from YouTube. I mentioned on the last episode that I've been a little bit slow in keeping track of the comments that are going on in YouTube. I tried to um, fix that today, went through a few videos worth of stuff, and came up with a couple things that I wanted to talk about. First, from from the last episode, last time we talked about running backs, Lee, a regular commenter, Lee86, offers this one up, and uh, it's something that I wanted to talk about. Lee writes, it kind of hurts to talk about RBs and the draft running backs in the draft in a funny way. A good running back is so enticing to want early, but keeping a good running back into a second contract is unlikely and by most standards, not smart. Yeah, we drafted Lacey, but I kind of hope we stay away from running backs until day three from here on out. I'm hoping for Darius Anderson out of TCU. First and foremost, I think that is a perfect way to put it. How exciting is it to watch college running back highlights? I think out of just about any position in the draft, that is the one that gets me going the most. It's amazing. It's exciting. It's awesome to watch a guy who is physically better than everybody else in the field dominate from the running back position. And it's easy to get caught up in the hype. Guys posting ridiculous highlight reel runs every play, every game, game in, game out, week in, week out for two, three years. You start thinking, we could use a guy like that. And I think the best way to think about it is is almost like buying a car. Most of us are probably not going to buy a real fancy car. 
But I think there is all, uh, for all of us, just about all of us, just about everybody I've talked to about this idea, we all have that car that's like, all right, if I didn't have to be practical, not even if money was no object, if I didn't have to be practical, here's what I'd get. I actually had this experience late last fall. We had the opportunity to to buy a car. We were buying used. So you got to be pretty careful about what you're what you're scouting for. I want to make sure you get value. I want to make sure you get something that, that checks all, all your boxes. So we were looking for something at an all-wheel drive, a lot of cargo space, got to haul a kid around now. We have a lot of different different needs from a car. So we find this really good one online, and we want to go see it in person. And I think this is probably going to be the one we've been looking for a while. And we get there, and I can see it. I can see it on the lot. I can see the one that we're coming to see because it was in a really distinctive color. It's like, it's looking good. That is the car that we need. Sensible, good gas mileage, all-wheel drive, great crash ratings, going to get us everywhere we need to go. We're going to be safe. We're going to save money while we drive it. It makes all the sense in the world. But as we come up to the car, we've got to walk around the corner. And what do I see but a red hardtop convertible Ford Thunderbird? Thunderbird's legacy car for Ford way back in the 50s and 60s. They brought it back, kind of a retro future look, early 2000s. For whatever reason, I loved that car as a kid. And if I ever have had the, would have had the opportunity to buy it as an adult where it would make sense, I would take that opportunity. And so as we're walking towards this car that makes all the sense in the world for us to buy, I have to walk past kind of the ideal version of this wildly impractical car that I've always wanted to get. And I happen to see the price tag, and it's not all that much. In fact, it's not all that much more than the car that we ended up buying. And there was a part of me that said, you know, we could get that car. We could probably make it work. It, it, it might fit with some of the things that we're looking for. Ultimately, your brain wins out and you say, let's get the actual practical car that we need as opposed to the car we want. That's drafting a running back. You could get the one with all the bells and whistles that's going in the first or second round. Chances are... You should probably stick with the practical day three pick and just see what can you can work out there. Now, I don't think Darius Anderson is the uh, the bells and whistles running back, and I think there's a good reason that you, you you could be interested in him. We had a few cutoffs for what we were looking for out of out of running backs when we did our our preview of of that position group. Some of the things that we were looking for were a good speed score, some moving mass. Well, speed score above 100, good relative athletic score, productive on the ground, and productive as a receiver. And the reason we didn't end up talking about Mr. Anderson, Mr. Anderson, um, was because he comes up just short on a lot of those metrics that we looked at, at, at least compared to the rest of the uh, the other running backs that we looked at. And that's partly because he didn't run very well at the combine. Just a 4-6-1 40-yard dash. And overall, some of the production metrics are just not quite there. Didn't score a whole bunch in the way of touchdowns, at least not compared to a lot of the other backs in the class, but was fairly good as receiver. And at 5'10", 208 pounds, if you can improve that 40-yard dash time, have not seen his pro day if they got that in before all these um, social distancing guidelines went into effect. 
But if you, if you ran better than a 4-6, I could see that being somebody the Packers are, are relatively interested in. It does have experience in a, a zone-type running attack, so that is an option. So if you're looking for a more practical car version of a running back, he might be a good option. And I do think, generally speaking, day two, late day two or day three is probably where the Packers should be shopping if they're headed out to the running back store. Then Janelle asks, and thank you for your patience, Janelle. I saw that you asked this on a couple videos. Uh, who are possible teams that the Packers could trade up or down with? Would Cincinnati, Indianapolis, or the New York Giants be looking to trade up into the first round? Well, I think you're on the right track looking at Cincinnati, Indianapolis, or, or New York looking to jump back into the first round. Not because the Packers wouldn't trade with anybody else in the first, or in the second round, that is, but because those teams all pick very close to the top of the second round. So the Packers pick 30th, of course, but Cincinnati, Indianapolis, and the Giants pick 33, 34, and 36, respectively. And to kind of redirect this question a little bit, I think almost every team would be willing to trade up given the price, and almost every team would be willing to trade back given the right compensation. So what is that price point? Let's look for a second at the Jimmy Johnson trade value chart. This is a, a thing that's been circling around since the early to mid-90s or so. He assigned a point value to every pick in the NFL draft, and basically you want to make the point values match if you're looking to to do a swap of draft picks. So if I've got the 30th pick and you've got whatever draft pick, you're going to have to make up the point value that my first-round pick is worth to make that trade balanced. It's not perfect. There are others around that follow broadly similar concept that value the picks a little bit differently, and those could be better. I think given that every team probably values these picks a little bit differently, this is about the best we can do. You've got to come up with a valuation that works for you. That's really the most important thing. So let's just use, just for the sake of discussion, the Jimmy Johnson trade value chart here. The Packers hold the 30th pick. That's worth 620 points on the chart. Cincinnati holds pick 33. That's worth 580. If they gave up the first pick of the fourth round, that would be 80 points. So that would make the trade worth 660 points coming back. The Bengals would be giving up a little bit more, but the Packers um, would be giving up the opportunity to, to pick where they are at 30. So maybe that one's not super likely. Indianapolis is a little bit more even. They have the 34th pick that's worth 560 points. They could give up a mid-fourth round pick, pick 122, which they own for 50 points, and a mid-fifth round pick, pick number 160, which is worth 26.2. That's a trade worth 636.2 points on the value chart. That one's a little bit more even. But New York might have the best shot. They hold pick number 36, and we're skipping over 35 because that's the Detroit Lions, and it's probably not a real strong possibility that the Packers are going to make a swap within their division, especially at the top of that uh, of that second round. So let's just jump to 36 with the New York Giants. 36 is worth 540 points on the value chart. If they gave up pick number 110, an early fourth rounder, that'd be worth 74 points. That makes their trade package worth 614 points. That seems to be a little bit more likely. Yeah, the Packers are technically losing that pick. But I think this one is interesting because in 2008, the Packers actually made a very similar swap. They traded pick number 30 for pick number 36, as well as pick number 113. That's worth 68 points. 
That is a total trade value of 608 points. But the Packers didn't necessarily lose that trade, even though they gave up more points than they got back, because they ended up picking Jordy Nelson. The ultimate thing you want to do when you're trading is making sure that you can get a player you like. That's more important than the pick value you're giving up. You've got to see what your board is doing, where the guys that you're valuing are falling, then decide whether or not you want to pull the trigger on a deal. To answer your question, Janelle, I think the Packers would be interested to trade with all of those guys, all of those teams, depending on how their board falls. And the best way for the board to fall, I think, the way the Packers would like it, is for what I always root for to happen, to happen this year, a run on quarterbacks. Quarterbacks are the most valuable position in football. And the more teams that you have kind of panicking and getting into the quarterback situation, the better chance you have of other players getting pushed down the board towards you. Now, the Bengals are going to have whatever quarterback they want, and they're going to get Joe Burrow, so they're probably not going to be super interested in jumping up from 33. Indianapolis just signed Phillip Rivers, but if they're looking for the quarterback of the future, maybe they're willing to jump up to 30 and try to get a guy who they think can take over for Phillip Rivers after this year. And jumping into the first round would give them that fifth-year option. That could be a realistic trade scenario, and that might be one where the Packers twist the knife a little bit and make them give up those two picks that we talked about, the fourth and the fifth round pick. That would be interesting. The Giants don't seem super excited to to get back into the quarterback game, having just done that last year, so they're probably out there too, even if the even if the point values matter or, or line up a little bit better. That's just one way of thinking about it. If the Packers see value on the board, I think that's the most likely reason that they would trade down. But that is something to be watching um, this year. Now for something completely different. Let's talk about defensive backs here. This, I think, is a, is a tough position to evaluate. Again, I say that about every, every position that we've talked about so far. But this one, I think, is hard because you don't see a lot of what's going on here. Defensive backs are like are a lot like the defensive version of offensive linemen. Everyone sees what they do. Not everyone really understands it. So much of what defensive backs do happen off camera and happen in relation to what other players are doing that it's easy to get a misinformed impression about what's going on. The Packers have had numerous situations where it looks like a guy's getting hammered in coverage, and it turns out to be not his fault at all. I recall it was against either the Chiefs or the Pack or the the Forty Niners the first time around. I have to look back at my notes. It's not really important which team it was about, uh, but there was one of those games where the Packers absolutely got smoked by a deep route by a tight end. It was either Kelsey or Kittle. Again, it doesn't really matter who, and it looked like Kevin King got obliterated in coverage. But what actually had happened was either Darnell Savage or Adrian Amos ended up making a mistake in coverage that exposed Kevin King, left him without help. And everybody crucified Kevin King online for it until they found out, oh wait, it was actually somebody else's fault. He was doing the right thing and just happened to be in the vicinity. That is the problem with defensive backs. And that's a big problem with evaluating defensive backs. You kind of got to take everybody else's word for it. How can we take that guesswork out of defensive back scouting for our purposes. I don't know if there's a foolproof way. 
uh, because the advanced analytics don't really have a number that is going to point us in the right direction for defensive backs. To top it off, there are so many different kinds of defensive backs. You've got, of course, your safeties in your corners, but then you've got your slot corners, your guys who only come in on third downs. You've got your safeties that are free safeties or strong safeties or box safeties or safety linebacker hybrids. There's so many different kinds that it's hard to know exactly what you're looking for or looking at. So I'm looking just at a very basic level at overall athleticism and our ball hawks number. So athleticism will use relative athletic score again. Ball hawks are the cumulative stat for interceptions, passes defensed, sacks, and fumbles forced. Basically making plays on the ball. The thinking is that the more plays you make on the ball, the better, the bigger impact you're making in the secondary. That is not always true. Because sometimes you're such a good defensive back that the ball never comes your direction. Jeff Jeff Okuda is a good example of that. From Ohio State, the top consensus top corner in this year's draft does not do very well on the ball hawks metric. Uh, there are many players, many, many players who are way ahead of him on that chart. That's not to say he's not a good player. And in fact, it'd be foolish to suggest that he's not a good player just because he doesn't rank very highly on that chart. In fact, he's only got 22 ball hawks total for his college career. That's more than 30 behind the top corner in the draft class at the combine this year. That's obviously not a fair way of looking at things, but it does help us narrow the field just a little bit. So I've got four corners I want to talk through real quick here, uh, four safeties as well, and then we'll kind of figure out what the Packers could be looking for here and try to make a projection from there. So for corners, I looked at a relative athletic score of eight or higher, plus being in the top 15 of ball hawks among players at the Combine. That left us starting with C.J. Henderson. He is Dane Brugler of the Athletics' number two corner in the draft, ESPN's number two, and Pro Football Focus's number three guy. Big corner, 6'1", 204, relative athletic score of 9.97. And you love that size-speed combination. His college defensive coordinator says he is the best defensive back that he has ever coached. Everybody talks about what he can do with his body. There are questions about his, uh, his ability to finish on the ball, but his athleticism is not in question at all. Everybody loves his tools. Um, not everybody loves what he, do- he does with them. Dane Brugler says he's he's great at doing everything right for the first 90% of a play, but then he fails to finish on the ball or with a tackle. I am not always super impressed with the criticism of defensive backs as not being great tacklers. Unless you're looking for safety that's going to play down by the line of scrimmage all the time, who cares about a, a cornerback's tackling skills? That's more of a bonus than I think a primary evaluation thing uh, to me. But We'll make a note of it when it comes up. You can weight it or disregard it at a level that seems appropriate to you. Sound good? Good. Moving right along, very similar prospect uh, to Mr. Henderson is Reggie Robinson out of Tulsa. Another big corner, 6'1", 205, a relative athletic score of 9.63. He had 42 ball hawks in his college career, including 34 passes defense. That's a pretty insane numbers. Did deal with some injuries. Not great in run support, but again, who cares? A great question, a great example, I think, of the question about cornerbacks 
Uh, do they get a lot of plays on the ball because they're good? Or do they have a lot of opportunities to make plays on the ball because they're giving up opportunities in coverage? That's a question we can't come up with an answer to. Just uh, just looking at the box score, you'd have to look at everything that he does on the field to get an answer to that. But I think it's it's a fair question and something that's worth being aware of. Moving along, John Reed out of Penn State is ESPN's number 30 corner, but he shows up in our metrics here. 5'10", 187, a good but not great athlete with a relative athletic score of 8.39. Little on the small side, had two big injuries on his record, two big knee injuries, one in high school, one in college. Said to be maybe just a nickel type. Again, just a good athlete, not a great one. I think the Packers can probably give this guy a miss. Same goes for Essang Bassi out of Wake Forest. This is a, a size question. He is ESPN's number 18 qu- uh, cornerback this year, but he is just five foot nine and 191 pounds. And the Packers have been a little bit more willing to budge on the size requirements at cornerback than they were in the past. I don't know if you want two of those guys in the same defensive backfield. He was productive in college, was a three-year starter at Wake Forest, but his size is a big red flag for me. Same thing goes for Josiah Scott out of Michigan State, ESPN's number 20 cornerback. He is just five foot nine and 185 pounds. However, I am sold on Josiah Scott for just one thing. This from his scouting report from Lance Zerline, affectionately named the Nat by teammates for his pesky, persistent coverage style, uh, coverage talent and playing style. What else do you want other than just being athletic and annoying out of a defensive back? Just ask Jair Alexander about that. He did have 10 games worth of injury issues between 2018 and 19. People mentioned his size not limiting him, which is great for a 5-foot, 9-inch corner. But again, just like his predecessor here, I struggle with the idea of adding another sized size-challenged corner. That's a quick look at the guys who are thought to be just cornerbacks in the draft. Moving on to safety, we've got a lot of tweener types to deal with. And if you love big athletic safeties, this is the draft class for you. For this group, I looked at uh, players who had a relative athletic score of 7.5 or better and 25 or more ball hawks in college. That left us with a list of four guys to take a serious look at here. So, starting with Jeremy Chin, a Saluki from Southern Illinois, one of my favorite college athletics nicknames for for a team. Uh, He is Dane Brugler's number seven safety. He is ESPN's number four safety. Six foot three, 221 pounds, a perfect 10 relative athletic score. So if you like big safeties, how about one who's a 10 on the athletic meter, has 51 ball hawks in his college career, and has already met with the Packers virtually or however they accomplish that. See if this paragraph from Dane Brugler sells you on Mr. Chin. Chin has a cornerback background and played various roles on tape, finding success versus the slot due to his size, speed, and ball skills. While he matches up well versus tight ends and defined underneath patterns, speedy route technicians will eat him up in space. Overall, Chin is caught guessing too often and must develop his football instincts to see his defensive reps in the NFL. But his range, length, and clothing closing burst give him the versatility to fill various roles, projecting as a matchup defender and special teamer. Maybe he turns out to just be a special teams guy or a linebacker tweener guy, but Lanzerline has his NFL comparison as Harrison Smith, which is insanely high praise. And he's definitely worth rolling the dice um, for that size, speed, combo. 
the Packers did just get burned in that arena with Josh Jones. But given that physical skill set, you can see why people are willing to roll the dice. And I think even Josh Jones shows you what you can do, even if you're not a great football player, but a very, very good athlete. He got a lot of burn on the field for the Packers as a rookie and made some pretty interesting plays at times just with that athleticism. He never figured out how to be a football player, but he did some great things just being an athlete, and I think you can roll the dice on a guy like that again. I don't know if I'd do it in the first round or the second round, which might be where you have to do it to get a guy like Jeremy Chin, but if he's around there in the third round, you never know. You pick a guy with a, a great athletic background who can do a lot of different things, and he might just find something pretty special for your secondary. Tanner Muse is kind of the more linebacker heavy version of Jeremy Chin. So Chin seems to to do a lot of defensive back things. He can play all throughout the secondary. Muse is more of the box safety linebacker tweener type. Six foot two, two hundred and twenty-seven. He is ESPN's number nineteen safety in the draft. Uh tweener linebacker type again. Might actually be too big to be a defensive back anyway, just because of the way his body is put together. He does get his hands on the ball pretty regularly, but not necessarily as frequently as other more defensive back specific guys on this list. I'm probably giving him a miss just because I don't think the Packers need another pure linebacker tweener type. I think they want to lean more towards secondary with the guys that they're looking for in the secondary, but it's an option. And the same is going to be true for the next two guys on our list too. Kyle Duggar out of Lenore Rhine. Lenoir? I'm not really sure. Division II school. Uh, if, if only there was some sort of unlimited resource of knowledge that we could look to to confirm that pronunciation. Oh, well, we'll figure it out another time. Dane Brugler's number three, ESPN's number six safety, six foot one, 214 pound prospect. Here's what Dane Brugler wrote about him, or excuse me, what Lance Zerline wrote about him. If you're looking for a guy who played small school competition and destroyed it, that's what you're looking for, I guess, at, at a smaller school guy. This might be the man for you. Listen to this. Quote, it's rare to find a safety with elite size, speed, explosiveness, and production at a Power 5 school and almost impossible to find one at a Division II school. Duggar crammed the stat sheet full and used those elite traits to dominate the competition. At times, he seems bored with his level of competition, but his engagement can be instant and urgent when it needs to be. He plays with controlled violence and carries an alpha demeanor on the field. That's about everything I'm looking for from a defensive back, I think. He projects as both a safety and a linebacker, can also return punts. Can he make the jump from Division II? I think that's a fair question. Playing at a small D2 school in North Carolina, jumping to the NFL, jumping to Green Bay, Wisconsin, that's a big jump. Uh, but I think that's fair. Uh, it's a fair thing to ask about just about every NFL prospect. Can they compete at the NFL level after doing it in college? Not everybody can, no matter how successful you are in college. So don't let, I guess, the idea that he played at a D school, DTU school deter you. The Packers have had some success with guys like that in the past. Finally, Legereus Sneed out of Louisiana Tech uh, might be the more chin version of these tweener hybrid safety cornerback type guy. Six six foot even, 192 pounds. Um, comes up again and again in his scouting report that he is 
not so much a, a safety linebacker tweener as a corner safety tweener. Maybe your third safety slot cover guy. Nobody seems super hyped on him as a prospect, uh, but he has pretty good size and he's an overall pretty good athlete. Um, he might be a good name to keep in the back of your mind. So of this list, I think there are four guys that I'd be interested in taking. Draft slot, agnostic sort of, just would be interested in having them on the Packers. C.J. Henderson seems like a no-brainer. You like that size, you like that speed, you like that he, even if he's only good for 90% of a play, can be in position to do good things. And uh, you hope that he projects well in the NFL. Reggie Robinson I like because of his size. Jeremy Chin I like because of the varied skill set along with the size and athleticism. And then Kyle Duggar kind of for the same reason. So two corners, two safeties who can do a little bit of everything. Um, And you just add them into the Packers defensive backfield and see what happens. I would be surprised if the Packers don't come out of the draft with some sort of secondary help. A guy who can just come in and do a variety of things. I think that's why these safety prospects are especially interesting to me this year. If you're looking for guys that can do a lot of things, it seems like there are some good options out there for you. And it seems like that's what the Packers could use. A guy who can help them in multiple spots. They've been missing that sort of player, I think, since Micah Hyde went out the door. They could use that player again. And if you've got the opportunity whether it's Kyle Duggar or Jeremy Chin, to get a player who can do a lot of those things while doing them at a very high level of athleticism, which was always a knock on uh, on Micah Hyde, I think that's something that you should be interested in. What do you think? What defensive back would you be interested in the Packers taking in the draft this year? Let me know wherever you find this podcast and help us keep the conversation about the Packers going. Also, keep up with your reading. For uh, Take Your Eye Off the Ball, we'll be discussing Chapter 2 on the next episode of Blue 58, so make sure you stay on top of that as well. Stay well. Do whatever you're doing safely. Uh, enjoy the time that you get with your family if uh, if that's something that you're getting to do and just keep doing your best to get through this we'll get through it together and like i said keep this conversation going about the packers because keeping talking is uh, is going to help us all become smarter packers fans and smarter packers fans as i always say make better packers fans and better packers fans are what we all want to be i'm your host john meerdink we'll see you next time on blue 58